This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. First of all, have any of you gone through a motivational slump? No. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No. I have, yes. So, so all of these things that could have been, oh, I had a bad day, turned into, I'm probably going to have a bad life. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, part two of our listener mailbag with Susanna Harris from PhD Balance. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 127. I'm Joshua Hall, and we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed our last show, episode 126, where we welcomed Susanna Harris, founder of PhD Balance, into the studio to answer listener questions regarding going to graduate school. So this week's show is the second part of that listener mailbag, but this time we're focused on questions dealing with various aspects of the graduate experience itself. We go into a range of topics from shifting gears after your project fails, the pros and cons of electronic lab notebooks, mental health in graduate school, and how that can impact your motivation. We cover a lot of ground, so let's just jump right in. Before we do, though, I wanted to make sure all of our listeners were aware of some special support just for you from our friends at Promega. Sometimes there's a specific technique that's giving you problems, or maybe an undergrad you're mentoring that needs to learn the basics of what you do all day. Either way, check out the Student Resource Center from Promega. They have resources on all kinds of cellular and molecular biology techniques, including cell culture, reporter assays, all types of PCR, cloning even sections on job applications and interviews. And while you're there, you can find information about Promega's partnerships with Hello PhD and the iGEM competition, and their brand new partnership with My Green Lab, which we featured here on the show in a previous episode. Just go to promega.com slash HelloPhD to check it out. And now let's get on to our listener mailbag. All right, now I think we're shifting gears into challenges during the PhD. Absolutely. This one came in over Twitter from Katie. How do you let go of your proposed PhD plan and breathe life and love into wherever it's going now, which feels like you're scraping up the dirt on the floor and mushing it into the vague resemblance of a thesis? Does that think, sound familiar to anybody? Uh, is this Are you ready close for dissertation, to him? Susanna? This is, yeah. This is too real. I feel <laughs> too this, soon. Too feel this soon. Deeply, yes. Yeah, this feels so distant for me. This part, uh, I can remember. You know, when you're in the in the stage where you're nearing the finish line and you're writing your thesis, I feel like I was so. When, when I looked at the work I'd done and the data I'd collected and what I was figures I was trying to put together, what I could see most clearly were all of the mistakes and all the ways I thought that the premises were thin and all the challenges and all the really the worst parts, all the behind the scenes mess. And I thought, this is all just terrible. Whatever your grand plan was, was gone for a long time. It felt that way. Um, even if that wasn't true, right? Or it didn't seem that way from the outside. I think my dissertation was three fully disparate projects that they related to each other only because we were a lab that studied a single protein, but they had nothing to do with each other. There was no therapeutic theme through the, through the work. And I jammed those 
chapters together and I got it out because I was ready to be done. But I didn't breathe life or love into it. I just finished it. Yeah, so what do you think? So let's imagine you've got this PhD plan. Maybe you craft it together. Susanna's living your it. Early so what is, your, what is your game plan? I mean, the further on I go in grad school, the more I do stuff not out of like love and happiness, but rather somewhere between spite and just sort of <laughs> exhaustion. I won't quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's really where it is. Where if I I'm keep like, crawling, I'll get out of this hole yeah, eventually. Yeah, I think that's, and that's the thing, right, is that truly my original PhD plan was not this specific thesis. It was to graduate with a PhD. And so changing the story, turning it around, giving it an upspin, you know, threading tiny pieces together where you see it as it not fitting, but somebody else, if you tell the story right, is going to be like, ah, okay, yeah, that makes sense, whatever. They're not entrenched in this. So I guess I would say that of what is your PhD plan? You don't have to give up on that, but was it really this one story or was it graduating or was it learning certain skills or developing techniques and focus on those pieces and the rest of it, just get it done. Just get it done. Hoops. Yeah, Dan, if we were to run some kind of algorithm on all of our episodes and statements that we have said the most times over 125 episodes. You know, I would say by the word beer. <laughs> It'd be um the thing that I've probably said the most is grad school's temporary, right? It's not a destination, but it's a journey to somewhere else. And I think you're absolutely right. At some point you have to realize I'm not going to care about the specific results of this project and the topic of this thesis five years from now. Like this is going to be a distant memory, but what is important is that I do what I need to do to finish so I can move on uh, with my life, with my career. This is so, uh, I feel like this is the depressing but true response. It's almost, it's almost a Zen approach. It's like, you've got to let your, your love for your thesis die so that your love for science can someday reemerge out of the ashes of the thing that, that you, that you had to destroy. I, you know, saying, how do I breathe life and love? And I'm thinking, well, how do you find the story behind the evidence you have and how do you, but maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer is you can't, you can't make the end process of graduate school of flowers and rainbows. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just not possible. I don't know. Well, yeah. And it's, it is that question of, of, what is the end of grad school? Is it your thesis? Is that really the thing that you're going to show everyone? Are you going to walk around and be like, I'm a PhD or you're going to hand them a, a thesis, right? You're going to talk about what you're excited about. Uh, I recently met with my committee chair and he's just awesome. He's totally like my grounding force right now. And I was kind of having these similar problems, not of le- like looping things together because I've been lucky there, but rather that I was like, this is a boring thesis. You know, it's like a one. This is not what I expected to be working on. Yeah. Like, is this a PhD? Like, really? Does this, does this count? Um, and he, you know, he just had the opinions of get it done. And he said, the one piece that nobody pays enough attention to, but can be really fulfilling in a PhD thesis is the future directions. And he said, you know, the point of the future directions is to be an expert. You get to say, this is what I've done. These are all the things that I know. And if I could decide where the field goes, or if I could predict, if I could take a minute to look in my crystal ball, what is important for the future? And so I think that's a really fun way to breathe that life back in of saying, you know what, maybe honestly, I went in with this expectation. It turned out all these different pieces happened and that's the exciting part of science. And so let's see how those pieces could further connect in the future. 
Yeah, I like that, and I'll build on it. I wonder if starting to look out at postdocs and the next thing that you might be interested in, if you can kindle that excitement about the next thing. Honestly, if you can escape science still excited to do science, I think you're winning 150%. So maybe maybe it's the case that, yes, in the rearview mirror, your research that was that could have been interesting day to day as you built the evidence, maybe not, but in the rear of your mirror, it's going to look dull and, and stupid, and you're going to wish you hadn't done it. But always keeping a lookout to the front to know that the next thing is coming. Maybe you're going to change fields totally, and that'll be exciting. Maybe you can look through the future directions of this project that the, you know, the students coming behind you can work on. But always keeping forward and keeping on that path. Yeah, I mean, I think one of your goals as a graduate student is to learn to think scientifically and develop questions and think critically, work as a team. And a byproduct of that, if you're lucky, might be that you discover something or you advance knowledge, but that, that maybe isn't your primary goal for being there as a graduate student. And your goal may be different than that of your PI, who that's their whole career is the output of that lab. So, all right. Well, this is great. Well, I guess our next question is quite a bit more specific, and I'll be glad to get Susanna's input on this, Dan. Did they have computers when we were in grad school? I'm trying to remember. I think they came out right at the end. Do you have those little punch card things? Yeah, that's what we had. The computer took up half the room. Vacuum tubes. Uh-huh, yeah. So this is about electronic lab notebooks. Is this uh, like electronic mail? <laughs> oh, that's what email stands for. Oh. oh, my gosh. All right, so this is from Zen. And so um, Zen said, what is your opinion on electronic lab notebooks? I find paper lab notes tedious and hard to keep track with. Any recommendations on e-lab books, pros and cons? I was thinking of using note-taking apps like Notion, Evernote, but wasn't sure if that's the best way to do it. Now, I can say I've not been in the lab for about 10 years, although I did play around from time to time with electronic lab notebooks. And there were sort of pros and cons for me. Um, what do people do these days? What's the, what do you do? Just tweet your results. Just tweet everything. <laughs> I, I'm, I was just looking at this question thinking, wow, I'm really impressed that they got that whole thing in a tweet. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you don't hear anything else about the rest of this answer, just this piece of don't do anything electronically without your boss knowing. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, I was going to ask about the, the regulations on this because I remember when we were on day one of graduate school, they give you a talk about your lab notebook the whole group, you learn about what it means to take notes and why it's required. Did they tell us about that? How long you have to keep them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I did not You tuned out. Oh, my gosh. You were on your tablet, your clay tablet. You know, I feel like I work a lot with students who are just starting out in graduate school. And one thing I hear all the time is certainly we think the lab notebook's really important, but almost never is there any specific information or training about how you do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, we definitely got it. It has to be in pen because then people can't go back and change the figures. You didn't have this talk? Uh, I mean, I had that talk, but that's like, okay, cool. When was the last time I used a pencil? <laughs> <laughs> I always like this mechanical pencil. <laughs> I feel yeah. like a pencil would be great if you, need, if you made a mistake and needed to write it out. Okay, right. back to electronic lab notebooks. So nobody's talking about how to keep lab notes in general when you work in a lab? I mean, a little bit. I think, so I've, I've gotten to work under a handful of PIs and they've all had different opinions, but... I think they've all shared the commonality of wanting a really great lab notebook, but not being able to describe what they want. 
Mm. at all. It's a good start. (laughs) Uh, And I actually, this is kind of funny because I I checked out a few electronic lab notebooks. I did a couple things online um, and I I did some researching. My boss actually looked around because she's all excited about those kinds of tracking devices. But more importantly, as I tried like 10 different formats of just book version of lab notebook. And I tried the thing where you put it in a binder where everything has this little packet. Like physical paper. Yeah, just physical yeah. paper. You know, I tried the thing where you have different notebooks for different projects, all these fancy things because it's going to be great and it's going to look really good for the next person. And inevitably, it just would get behind and behind and behind. And my lab notebook now does not look great. There's a whole page per day. There's a bunch of white space, you know, I'm killing the trees, but not as much as I am with like all the other plastic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just by date. And then at the, at the top, it says generally like, what kind of project is this? And just enough information that I know what I did and I can go back and answer any questions. But as far as the on like the electronic stuff, first thing is just talk to your boss. If you know, do some research, decide what pieces you want. There's lab notebooks for all of these different things and they are ready to sell you on it. So if you find something you like, it's also okay to bring it up to your boss and reach out to the company and say, I'm trying to convince my boss, can you give me any reason that they would want to do this? Uh, but at the end of the day, if if your boss says they don't care, try some stuff out. You know, there's not really a loss there. Uh, and if they say no, just by no means do that. Yeah, it's probably important to remember that at, at the end of the day, the lab notebook is long-term not for you. It's really for the people who stay behind for your PI and the other lab members after you leave. Um, I can remember being an undergrad and we had uh, a student from Japan who was in our lab at undergrad. And we all kept our lab notebook on physical notebooks. And then she left and moved back to Japan. And we needed to know something about an experiment she had done. Opened the lab notebook, all in Japanese. (laughs) None of us spoke any Japanese. It could decipher. So, Uh, But I think that was an important point, that the lab notebook, for you while you're there, but at the end of the day, it's a reference for the other people who are there after you leave. Let me make a pitch then for the electronic lab notebook. Not that I did it, because we didn't have computers then. But that's actually not true. There were computers. There were computers. Okay. That's true. It was not the dark ages. Not laptops, but can you imagine how great it would be if your lab notebook were searchable? And you say, Oh, what what was I doing mm-hmm. on the day when I had this reagent? Or when's mm-hmm. the last time what are the last five experiments that I used the reagent and which experiments of those failed? Mm-hmm. And like how great would it be to be able to do that? The the other side of that is, and this is my concern about this, I feel like I, I did two things in lab notebooks. One was you, you plan a project, you think through it, you write down things you found, you analyze results, you write them down, which feels like electronic would be the way to go. But the day-to-day sitting at the bench, mm-hmm. can you have a laptop next year, Bunsen burner? Technically, no. And <laughs> do I want to take that laptop home and sit on my couch at home where it was? Yeah, I feel like in practice, there's something about having the physical book and for right. me this might be a me problem when i would try to do electronic lab notebook i always felt like i spent more time feeling like it had to be more organized and neat and formatted versus a physical book i could just jot down draw things paste in a graph i don't know unsure no no right answer but i think suzanne it's read the best answer whatever you do make sure you're 
bosses on board. Yeah, do a little research. There's a couple big ones that are out there. I would also say, you know, there's try the established ones. Maybe the the smaller ones have like better deals or are more fun. But uh, you definitely want one that's going to stick around because the worst thing that could happen is yep. that a company goes under and you don't have mm, access or something like that. So make sure that they have some sort of clause in there that you will have forever access to your data. Yep. That makes sense. And and this is one that I think I'd love to hear from listeners who are using electronic lab notebooks. This could be a whole episode someday. If, uh, we should do a lab notebook episode. That'd be good. If people, yeah, yeah. if nobody's doing the training, we should probably we find should somebody to, yeah. to do that public service. All right, so we have uh, two more questions left. And this next one actually um, specifically came in for you, hmm. uh, Susanna. So this is from Josh, not me. It's actually just Josh. <laughs> <laughs> He's Motivational very, slump. He's not very creative <laughs> about naming. This one's from Josh. Yeah. Air quotes. I'm a fourth year PhD student, and this is a question for the next mailbag episode with Susanna Harris. Have any of you gone through a motivational slump during your PhD training? And if so, do you have any tricks to help pull yourself out of it? It'd also be great to hear any related advice from a mental health perspective. For example, if the slump is wrapped in some longer term mental health issues. Thanks, Josh. First of all, have any of you gone through a motivational slump? No. I yes. don't know what that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No. I yes. It's called grad school. Yeah. <laughs> Five year period where I was in a motivational you know, slump. It's it's probably impossible to do anything for any length of time yeah. without some sort of motivational slump. I mean any and it, you could be on a perfect island for five years if you're doing any if you could do anything for five years even if it's 20 different things you're gonna have times where you're not motivated i don't feel like relaxing today (laughs) i guess i'll take a jog (laughs) yeah so so what do you do so when that inevitably happens the world doesn't stop there's still things to do there's still progress you want to make how do you how do you pull yourself out of that i I don't feel feel motivated i feel like no there's i feel like there's a lot of subtext in here where he asks from a mental health perspective, for example, if the slump is wrapped in some longer-term mental health issues. So uh, I'll I'll rephrase the question. How do you know if it's a slump, a a simple, oh, this week I'm not motivated to be there, I need a vacation, versus this is a symptom of a longer-term pattern that I I need a different kind of help for. So let's start with how do you know (laughs) the difference between a slump and something more serious that maybe is is part of a mental health crisis or pattern? So there's a couple of decent answers for this. One is that mental health issues, kind of the requirements are at least least a two-week period of time, and they usually want more than that. So people get depressed as an emotion all the time. You know, if, if sad things happen or you wake up and dog threw up on the floor hypothetically and you know you miss the bus and your experiments fail and you're just like not motivated for three days that's just like a human thing you're not a perfect creature uh and and actually that's just part of being a person versus if it's just every single day for longer than two weeks and and into that, then it could be something else. It's funny because I read this question a little bit differently in terms of, let's say you already know that there's a mental health issue. And so, you know, because teasing it out, I think that you're best thinking about, you know, is this a, a point in time or am I just seeing a pattern? And my best advice for this is like, if you think, if you're asking yourself if it could be a mental health issue, it probably is mm-hmm. because of how we view mental health and the stigma around it, that when you get to the point where you're wondering, it's worth going in to talk to somebody. Uh, but 
you know, for me, so I have a really long history of depression and anxiety. And so I know that I have the background mental health issues. And so when I hit this point of demotivation, it is a question, though. Is this a depressive episode? Is this, you know, am I being lazy? Is this a motivation thing? There's a difference between burnout, which is where you've done one thing you for too long. You actually need a break. Yeah, you actually just need a break uh, versus is this something that I need to go talk to my therapist or my psychiatrist about? And so I think, you know, the first piece, no matter where you are, is to try to figure out how long this is lasting. Is this a pattern? And is it stemming from somewhere that's not what you're actually doing? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned therapy, too, because I think if you're in a position where maybe you're struggling to figure out the answer to those questions. Like, I, you know, I know I feel this way where my motivation feels lower than I feel like it should be. Something doesn't feel quite right, but I don't know what to do about it. You know, a good therapist can be a great person to help you answer some of those questions and give you some perspective and some resources. So I think that's an important piece of it if it's not already part of your life. Yeah, for and we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, looking back on my graduate school experience, the way I can tell now that it was more serious is that it wasn't, I I lost interest, not just in the graduate school. I thought I'm probably never going to be interested in anything. So, so all of these things that could have been, Oh, I had a bad day turned into, I'm, I'm probably going to have a bad life. And Mm -hmm globally this is i'm going to just be i'm an unhappy person or maybe this is going to make me unhappy and actually in those times i didn't recognize myself because i'd always been fairly happy about my experience but in those moments or in that in those years it was nothing good is going to ever happen for me again so and and i i couldn't even think you know when i would stop and think like well if i don't want to do science anymore what do i want to do and i couldn't think of anything that i thought i would want to do so those were some signs for me that this this kind of ever-expanding balloon of demotivation and not even being able to find hobbies and things that seemed interesting, that told me this is not just local to today. This is something going on as a pattern. Yeah, I remember thinking on you know one of the really down times where, well, I'm not happy doing this. Oh, well, I had a, a decision to choose what I was going to do and I chose poorly, so I guess at, this is just my lot in life now. At the age of 23 <laughs> right, or exactly, whatever. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> This brings up my favorite word of all time, which is anhedonia. So this is the term of the general like malaise or I don't give a darn. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. You can say whatever you want. Um, He'll bleep it out. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just the general not caring about anything, not having even the scariest part to me is when I don't have like a negative emotional response, right? It's one thing to just not be excited, but when bad stuff happens and you're just like, all right, whatever, thanks, cool. Um, But anhedonia, that general loss of interest in anything. And so for me, that's the difference of am I demotivated in terms of do I need a break, right? Am I like I'm demotivated to clean my house, to work on lab stuff, to read papers, but wow, it sounds really nice to go walk my dogs. I wish I could go do that instead of this stuff. Or is it, I am too tired to walk up to my bed. Uh, nothing sounds good, even taking a shower. That's not demotivation. Yeah, those are different. And and so for the longer term, for the mental health issues, and I think hopefully we've given a reasonably good description of like you said, if you're worried about that, it's worth going to talk to somebody uh, who is a professional. And 
and feel good about yourself that you're taking that step because a lot of people don't and and like I did suffer for it through a long period of time when they didn't have to right um, but for the kind of temporary motivational slump what are some strategies for maybe rekindling your interest in your project I say talk about it talk about it with people who aren't going to critique it talk about it with people who are going to get excited about it. So maybe that's, you know, it's not just verbal talking. It could be writing. Uh, one way that I got remotivated with my research, uh, even when I was dealing with a lot of really difficult stuff, I was it was actually funny because I was demotivated about everything. And then I got really excited about my research because I started doing science outreach. And just seeing kids get excited about the science I was talking about was like, oh, yeah, this is really cool stuff. Like my Not job everybody is, knows this already. Yeah, it's like my job is actually really cool and not just I'm not just convincing myself. Um, and so finding ways to kind of bring yourself back to that core of why do I like this? Why did I say yes to this? Am I excited about it? Do I want to meet people? Do I want to answer questions? Because there's people like that who just want to be at the bench and they're having to do a bunch of literature search. So do something at the bench to to check your literature. Just find that piece that you really like. I think that's really great advice. And and it, it took me a very long time to understand what got me into science in the first place. Because like, I, I worked hard to be in graduate school. There was something that drew me to it. And it wasn't until very far into my, my training that I realized that the pieces of it that I really love were not what I was doing. Um, and, and if I had known in the beginning, I could have directed my pa- project, my path. I could have taken some... Uh, extracurricular activities that stimulated that part of my brain that was searching for what I thought was science, but was a specific aspect of it that I just ended up in a lab where, where we were doing that. So I think that's great advice. Um, and Josh, you've had great experiences doing a little bit of outreach or a little bit of science communication to, to help rekindle your motivation. Yeah, no, I agree with Suzanne entirely. The times I felt most motivated were when I got out of my lab, even out of my university, gave a talk, went to a conference, did science outreach, and sort of had that outside outsider's view on the things I was doing and that external validation of, wow, that's really interesting. That was extremely motivating to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things that I had to learn in the middle of grad school was that this idea that you're always supposed to love your project, that, you know, we're in science because it's great. We love it. We're doing a PhD. PIs are like that. It seems. They all seem that way. They all, and they do. And it's funny because you talk to them in private and they will eventually say like, oh, that's not how I feel, but I want to say it because my, my lab needs it. And you're like, oh, that's not what they need, but okay. This uh, is the captain of the ship that needs to <laughs> maintain confidence before they crash into a rock. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's a passion and sometimes it's a job and that can be really fantastic. I think that's part of it. To accept that, just to notice that it doesn't have to always be the... Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of my advisors, one thing that they said recently, and I just like want to write this on a notebook and just carry it with me, but um, they said, there are things that you do well at. There's things that you do well and that's your job. And there's things that you enjoy and that's your passion. And you're really lucky if you can mix those two pieces together. But sometimes you have to just do your job so you can enjoy your passion. You know, as, as you were describing some of these things, I was reminded of some conversations that have gone on in the Twitter world over the last few weeks and months about what it, what is it to be a scientist. And you know, as we're having this conversation, I'm reminded how broad science really is and how many 
different people and different ways of thinking about things and different skills and talents are really needed to be part of that. And I was reminded of this quote, Dan, that I think we talked about on the show once before by um, Peter Medawar, who was a Nobel laureate. I remember well. And, Do you and, want me to just quote it to you? Well, I had to look it up. Okay. You, you, you memorized it? No. It's, there's no such thing as a scientific mind. Scientists are people of very dissimilar temperaments doing different things in very different ways. Among scientists are collectors, classifiers, and compulsive tidiers up. Many are detectives by temperament and many are explorers. Some are artists, others artisans. There are poet scientists and philosopher scientists and even a few mystics. What sort of mind or temperament can all these people be supposed to have in common? I just love that. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, well, let's do one more question. And uh, I, I want to say here in the middle, I think the the fireball has really cured in my in my cider. I think I'm I'm picking it up. I think it's growing on me. I think the taster has changed by the taste. Are you getting the cinnamon? I feel like as it's sort of ruminated. Maybe, maybe we didn't the, do a good job of stirring. So no. that, yeah, I didn't actually stir it <laughs> all. There, there so. are probably different densities. Mm-hmm. While you sample that, I will go ahead and read the last question. Hello, hello, PhD, PhDs, which is the most mm. confusing. <laughs> hello? <laughs> hello, yeah. Uh, I received my BS in biomedical engineering a bit over a year ago and have since been working in the medical device industry. I'm glad that I took this gap year between my undergraduate and graduate studies to better understand the industry as well as myself and my goals. I've decided that I would like to pursue a master's or a PhD in biomedical engineering, but I'm having trouble deciding between the two options. I was exposed to a bit of research during my undergraduate years, but how can I really understand if full-time research is for me if I haven't actually done it? My question is, does it make more sense for me to pursue a master's degree first to gain more exposure to research and advanced education and ensure that the PhD route is truly for me, or should I directly enter a PhD program with the fail-back option of leaving with my master's if I determine the PhD isn't for me? Thanks again for your generous efforts in educating the community on the highs and lows of graduate school. And I hope you guys continue to do this for a long time. Best, Ched. Not a typo. I love yeah, that. Yeah, actually said not a typo. <laughs> <at the laughs> end. This is the best sign-off I've ever seen. I hope that's in your actual signature, Ched. It was totally there. Oh, gosh. Thank I you, Ched. It. What do you think? All right. So what we have going on here is, so Ched is trying to decide about directly going into the PhD program with a fallback of leaving with a master's if it doesn't work out. But it sounds like Chad has very little research experience. A little in. bit of direct, a little bit. Uh, I've, I was exposed to a bit of research during my undergraduate years. I have a strong opinion on this, but I would love to hear what others think. Susanna? I'm worried that my opinion is too strong because of the fireball, but... Um, <laughs> Blame it on the fireball. <laughs> Uh, so one, kudos to taking off some time into understanding that that was really Agree useful. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, something I wish I had done. You know, I wouldn't go back and change it now, but that's a big piece of advice. So my feeling is to not start something expecting that it's going to be a fallback. Um, whether this is, you know, even when you're applying to graduate schools, don't apply somewhere that you're not excited to go. Don't join something with the 50-50 shot of like, if I need to, I'll just leave because that's going to be really apparent. You know, it's not as though you're going to get in and be really great at research if you hate it. Uh, You're going to come in at a position where you might have a lot less research experience than other people and that's fine. You can make up for it by being very excited. But if you're not, even getting to that master's degree and leaving with those letters of recommendation that you need, that's going to be really tricky. 
I think for for me, I think that there's actually a third option here, which is to go and get just research experience. Uh, you know, don't pay for a master's degree just to do research for a university. Uh, find a job that you're able to do research. No, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, doing a PhD in some sort of scientific field is all about doing research. And as hopefully has been painfully apparent, I mean, the reason this show exists is it's hard because mistakes were made. (laughs) 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 And, you know, honestly, and we've said this before, Dan, too, you know, one of the most important decisions you can make is should you go to graduate school? And we'll be the first ones to say that maybe you shouldn't and you should spend as much time thinking about whether this is really what you want to do or need to do to get where you want to go. And so if you haven't had a lot of opportunity to explore research, especially explore research in more of a full-time setting, you may be in for rude awakening. You don't really know what it's going to be like. And what Susanna said is absolutely true. There are lots of opportunities out there to get some experience doing some full-time research as a job. So you'll gain some income, but also you know, build your CV, build your resume, which is a good thing, but also even more important, decide, do you love it? Do you love research? You know, I don't think you need to love doing research when you finish grad school. I think there are a lot of things that you can do with a PhD, but I think you kind of need to love doing research when you start graduate school, because that's really what you're going to be doing day in and day out. And if you don't know that, then maybe it's not quite the right time yet to to make that leap into a PhD program. I think there's actually a check gate on this system that will will prevent Ched from making a life mistake, which is, I think it'd be, uh, maybe biomedical engineering is a little bit different, but I'd be surprised if you could make it through an application and an interview process and fake your way into getting them to believe that you knew you wanted to do research. I think they're going to look at your, uh, your experience so far and say, oh, you know, we would like to see a little bit more research. Uh, and they would probably give you that feedback. And if if you even express the hint of, well, maybe I want to do research, but I may not like it, so I'm just here to find out, I think then it's over. So so I think your, your advice, uh, the two of you have, is exactly on. Go do it. And, and I love Susanna's advice. Don't pay for it. Have somebody pay <laughs> you to go do it. I don't know what this, um, what this medical device job is like, but I'm sure there are opportunities in a similar company that might be easy to move to now that you've got some experience in a, in a medical device uh, industry where you can do some research and uh, having that experience is going to go a long way for you to know and you to be confident when you say on your application, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of my biggest issues with academia and the reason it's so different from air quotes, normal adult life is that if you are in a job of any kind and you work there for three years and you're productive and people like you and you learned a lot of skills and after three years you decide to move on to something else, that is a huge bonus for your resume. That looks great. Now, if you're in a PhD position, and I don't think it should be this way, but it just is. If you're in a PhD position and you leave because it wasn't the right fit for you, you don't like it, it's not what you want to do, that's going to be apparent in your letters of recommendation. It's going to be apparent in your conversations, and it's not going to look good for people who understand how PhDs work. Yeah, it, it sounds so easy before you're in to say, oh, if I don't like this, I can leave with a master's. That is not how it feels when you're on the Le- Leaving is hard. It's and really tough. A lot of people stick it out a lot longer than they should just because leaving is, it's not a trivial thing to do. And nobody wants to help you do it. 
nobody wants to help you leave with a master's. Uh, and so it's, it's hard and scary to work through a PhD, but at least if you can be honest with people and say, I really want to get through this PhD, can you help me? A lot of people will say, yeah, they'll, they'll try. Uh, but a lot of people don't know how you leave with a master's and they're not very motivated to help you get there. True fact. I tried to quit. Did didn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you ask your PI if you could quit? And she said no. And you said okay. I didn't say no, but she's like, I think you should stay. I think we can work this. Yeah. And you so said okay. It's not easy to do as a person who has tried it. Yeah. So I think the advice is go go get some experience, and then you will know. And and don't. I, I think the mistake what you said Susanna, is like it's okay to take some time off and go find out because it feels it feels like time is such a big pressure. I felt this way. I felt I can't take a year mm-hmm. off when I'm 22 years old. I should have taken a year off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, a big part of my job is I run a post-baccalaureate program, which is made up of students who are deciding to take a year before going to graduate school to gain more experience, just like we're the advice we're giving Chad to do. And without exception, after the fact, you know, those students report, it's not a waste of time, but you actually hit the ground running even faster once you get to graduate school because you know so much more about yourself, what's expected and what you want out of grad school. So, I, I mean, kudos to Chad, though, for one, taking the time off, but also asking these questions. It's the right question. Yeah. It's great. Well, As it's opposed great. to the rest of us who <laughs> went to grad school. There's well, no way to ask. We have covered a lot of ground. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us and helping us answer these questions. Yeah, thanks for having me and giving me some cider. And, and we will have upcoming episodes. We've gotten a lot of emails and messages this season about people who, uh, their friends or people they know are hearing back about applications, about interviews. And we've gotten a lot of, of emails from people saying, I haven't heard anything about an interview. I maybe didn't get in this year. What do I do? And so uh, I think we owe you an episode about what to do if you didn't get that interview this year. How can you make your application better for the next time around? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Susanna, before you get out of here, uh, where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. It's Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A, the letter L, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. But if you want more entertainment slash just finding a lot of other awesome people in academia, I definitely suggest you check out PhD Balance. That's also on Instagram and Twitter, which is PhD underscore balance. Uh, Or you can find us at www.phdbalance.com. Thank you so much for being here, and we will probably see you again sometime. <laughs> rack up those, rack up those audio podcasts, and you will finally catch uh, Emily Roberts. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer or cider money. And thanks for the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Well, this has been fun. Thank you both. I enjoyed this. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time, Josh. See you next time. Dan, read the copy. I wrote it down. Well, you read the copy. Please just keep this in the episode. (laughs) This is everything that gets cut every week.